welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. This episode is being recorded live from the NRFshop.org Digital Summit on Wednesday, September 28th, 2016. For our live audience, this is the first of three podcasts we're doing today. Up next, we'll have Facebook, and finally at 11.30, Scott and I will be recapping the highlights of this year's Shop.org Summit. As usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Good morning, Jason. We are here live from the shop.org digital summit. And as we've been saying, we have access to what I would call some of the greatest luminaries in e-commerce and retail. They were all busy this morning. So we have <laughs> Rob Schmoltz here, who is the SVP of commerce and CRM at Talbots. You guys like to say the Talbots, right? We, we do on occasion. Okay. Yes. Um, Rob also is the chairman of the NRF digital council. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, and I, th- I was checking, uh, and this is a little scary, but I th- I've known Rob at least for 10 years, and I think maybe 14. We'll have to dig into that. Uh, we first met when he uh, uh, he was at a Channel Advisor partner, GSI Commerce. Welcome to the show this morning, Rob. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be here. As they say, uh, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. So I've always wanted to say that, and, and now I have. So I'm feeling good. Cool, cool. Um, so you have had a long and storied career uh, in the world of commerce. Uh, give us a little background of how you got into this uh, exciting industry and and what you're what you're doing now. Awesome, and I like that better than uh, Jason's earlier comment. I think a couple weeks ago that I had a long and I think he said sordid career, which is which is good too. So yeah. either way, you know, it's funny. I uh, actually started in the internet space in 1994, which is fairly early on. Um, I won't say I had some uh, premonition of the future um, because I thought and you were 18, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, I was pretty young, but not 18, and. Uh, I, uh, I thought I was going to talk to a guy about a, a, a job in telecoms. So that's how much I knew about the internet. And uh, certainly uh, everyone else I knew had a job had no idea what I was doing uh, up until the point when Netscape went public. And then they were all convinced I was going to be uh, their richest friend, which I'm not. But uh, it's been a great, you know, great run anyway. So I had a lot of fun and done a lot of interesting stuff. Cool. So, uh, so tell, take us through like the highlights of that. So was that uh, like a online community kind of thing or what was that earliest experience indeed it was so that's actually a a great uh, call i'm sure your research uh, department let you know about that but it was a first person perspective 3d multi-user environment so kind of think uh like a uh, a doom only instead of shooting uh inanimate characters you actually could interact with other people's avatars so it was pretty out there um, but what's interesting about that period uh, is everything seemed out there, right? Everything was so uh, brand new. So I remember sharing a cab with Jerry Yang because we were both uh, poor guys at poor startups. And we were leaving a conference uh, and he was all bummed out and was telling me how much cooler our stuff was than his stuff, uh, <laughs> which was kind of kind of funny in, uh, in hindsight. So yeah. Jerry Yang, founder of Yahoo. I imagine it's that for Jerry the younger, you're talking about. For the younger yeah. listeners. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. None of the millennials yeah. know who the heck any of these yeah. people are. But yeah, for the exactly. record, if you take the long view, he w- he was right. Yeah, in some ways. <laughs> yes. So, yes, in some ways. Yeah. Okay. So you did that. And uh, I imagine that was pretty exciting in retrospect. It's probably 8-bit and you could barely see what was happening on the screen. Yeah, kind of old school. You know, we did a lot by actually putting the uh, environment uh, on the client 
And so that really all we had to pass through, the literally 14-4 modems uh, a lot of time, was the your avatar so Jason and I could see it and vice versa. So um, it was very bandwidth efficient. Uh, but now we're really and, uh, for our millennial listeners. A modem, a modem is a thing that used to have to you used to have to dial up, and this was a you'd actually kind of have to go through this weird thing. So it was complicated. It was very complicated. Yeah. It was very complicated. Did you, did you do acoustic coupler? Is that um, where we are? You had to be very careful about what kind of a phone line you plugged it into because if you plugged it into somebody's office to give them a demo, you were likely to blow your modem. So you had to go stand by the fax machine generally to actually give a demonstration of the product. So that was always fun. Some good pitches over by in the dark corner of the fax machine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I feel like that that was a funny era there were, there were a few companies that like sort of envisioned the future of all of us having these virtual re- uh, worlds where we could interact with each other and do social good and get to know each other better and in all the focus groups on those fo- worlds it always seemed like everyone just wanted a gun yeah yeah I, I know gaming we probably made a big mistake in not going for gaming right i mean gaming's a great entry thing for any new medium um so cool so that sounds like an exciting start and, and how, where'd you go from there so there, I mean, here's kind of a weird transition. I ended up at McKinsey, uh, the consulting firm. And uh, it was uh, uh, partly because I'd gotten to know a guy named Phil Terry, who you probably both know. Um, and uh, he was connected with a McKinsey partner named John Hagel. McKinsey was, uh, at that time, uh, very um, short of internet, uh, people with internet knowledge, um, which is uh, not a situation McKinsey likes to be in where their clients have a lot of questions about something and they don't have a lot of background in it. So um, uh, that pro- I probably wouldn't have made it past the McKinsey filter if it wasn't for that. Um, so joined uh, McKinsey as an internet specialist, so a bit of an, an odd duck. Um, but uh, that was about as fun as probably McKinsey could be. I got to do a lot of great stuff, uh, meet with a lot of uh, interesting businesses, companies, and uh, where I'd been in the startup world, um, uh, now all of a sudden I was dealing with you know Fortune 500 companies, both in the U.S. and in Europe, and helping them with their internet strategies. Um, and that's when we started to see commerce come into play a little bit. So um, you know, it started out being mostly media companies, but then increasingly people were looking at how to monetize uh, uh, in ways other than, say, ads uh, and moving on to, uh, to commerce. So that was probably where I first started to get my uh, toes wet with, uh, with e-commerce. Cool. I always imagined that kind of job being like uh, those consultants on the Office Space movie where they, you just kind of tell the company exactly what they know they need to know, totally. but uh, it, it validates it having it come from a third party. Is that kind of what it, it was like in well, the early days? Well, the great thing yes, is... Yes, Internet's real and you should take it seriously. Because my full name is Robert, I could go by Bob. And oh, so, nice. yeah. So you could be we, a Bob? Yeah, I could be a Bob. So that worked out, that worked out for me in a lot of levels. I, I, it's funny. I have a, a former mentor who's a managing partner at McKinsey, and he used to joke that, like, you know, most industries that hire Ivy League MBAs, you sort of have to write off the first year of productivity because you need to use that to beat beat all the arrogance out of them. <laughs> and the, the one exception was management consulting, where you sort of fan the flames and said, "Hey, kid, go in there and tell the CEO how to do it." Yeah, now, there, there there is some truth to that, and and I think Scott's point. Um, it, it, the, and I don't, I'm not here to defend management consulting, but I think sometimes the fresh eyes on things, right? And, and Jason, I'm sure this is true in your world. Um, the probably the easiest uh, ways to move clients forward is where they sort of already know in their heart of hearts that what you're telling them is right, but they needed, whether it's for internal political reasons or just uh, inertia, to have an expert like you come in and tell them, hey, this is really the way you need to play this. External validation. Yeah, 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 exactly right. Um, So uh, just continuing the thread, I went from being the internet guy at a strategy firm to then becoming the strategy guy at an internet firm. Uh, So while I definitely learned a lot at McKinsey, um, 
you know, I, I kind of got antsy after being um, having been in the startup world. So um, uh, wanted to get back into sort of more of a, a tech environment. So I joined a firm called Fort Point Partners. Um, some people remember them. We did a lot of the large scale e-commerce and systems integration firm. So we did a lot of large scale e-com, uh, early e-com sites like uh, we worked a lot with Best Buy, with Nike, with Estee Lauder, with J. Crew, with Finish Line, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but where folks may know them now is we ultimately morphed that company uh, into Offermatica, which was subsequently acquired by um, Omniture Adobe and now is Adobe Test and Target, essentially. Um, so that was a great experience. Just getting to work with a lot of different uh, e-commerce players at a time when people were really trying to figure out uh, what it means. And some of the same questions we're asking now, what's the role of uh, a catalog versus uh, a website or in relation to a website? How do websites and stores interplay? You know, that's probably the first time I was getting exposed to some of those questions. Uh, and in many ways, the, the, we still haven't got all the answers figured out, uh, which, um, you know, as you guys, I think, probably point out every week on your podcast. There's more questions. That's the, that's the problem. That's right. Yeah. Mobile, obviously, complicating things further. Well, then how did you end up at GSI? So um, uh, my wife's job actually took us down to Philadelphia. And I'd gone for, at that point, Fort Point uh, and GSI were uh, competitors when I was first moving down there. So I'd sort of had it in my blood that I didn't like those guys, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I, uh, I finally, a uh, recruiter said, just have lunch with this one guy there. So um, I had uh, a lunch with one of the founders and uh, very quickly met Michael Rubin, who is, uh, for those who haven't met him, is probably one of the uh, most convincing people on the planet. Um, I will and, second that. Yeah, so I, I, I got to work for these guys. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, uh, spent four years there, um, had a really great team. Um, actually, a lot of folks from that team have gone on to do some amazing things. And uh, um, they certainly, uh, just their dedication and, and commitment every day showing up uh, was really impressive. And uh, a great experience for me because uh, I had 42 different businesses under me, which while unwieldy, uh, did a couple things. One, it allowed me to see how a lot of different people approach their e-commerce businesses. So I sort of got, in a sense, got to learn on their dime uh, to a degree. And then two, it would have been very difficult for me as a uh, systems integration sort of advisor to retailers to become a retailer. But because GSI was a services firm, and yet a bulk of my business was what in GSI speak was known as the owned inventory uh, model. Um, that, meant, that meant GSI in that case was actually the retailer and we would be doing business as Dick Sporting Good, doing business as the NFL, etc. And so I, I sort of almost without realizing it became a retailer. Um, and uh, that was has been invaluable and has kind of you know led to what I've done since. Very cool. Um, and uh, some of those those early GSI clients are just now moving off of the the platform, um, so it's it's been interesting to to see you know moving from that let someone else do it for you, yeah. having to build those internal muscles for the first time. I feel like some of your work is o- only now, many years later, finally, finally getting being unwound. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the, their businesses have obviously dramatically improved by unwinding it. But um, the. Uh, not even a courtesy laugh from Scott. I mean, come on. So, you know, you know what was... There we go. All, right. Most, all of Scott's work was unwound long ago, so yeah, yeah. he's sort of over it. I'm still you know, thinking about what it would be like managing 42 businesses. It, it you must was, have been really good at time management. Well, you know what? Um, it, it wasn't me. It was... Again, I mentioned it before. It was the team. So, I just had... I had people who uh, were just fantastic and, and uh, really great. You know, a couple things on GSI, um, and, and they certainly... Uh, you know, you, you can give them various digs. One thing is they got the... Um, marketing downside of being everyone assuming that what you got was a one-size-fits-all platform, when in fact what it was, it was highly customized for every single client. 
which which is created just an inordinate amount of technical complexity and super technical scalable debt for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and they had 90 yeah. businesses running on it, it's right? like 90 different code streams. Yeah, nice. Ex- exactly. And then to Jason's point about building the muscle, um, you know, going back to what I said about being able to work with these 42 different brands. And I, I think this is true in any um, uh, relationship, whether it's something as sort of soup to nuts like GSI or, or even an agency relationship with, with, you know, channel visor or, or, uh, or Razorfish, um, the guys that were the best clients and they got the best results out of GSI were the ones that were engaged, knew how to hold us accountable, knew how to get us to focus on the right things, knew how to bring what they knew uh, to the relationship. The people that truly were hands-off and sort of said, oh, uh, GSI does this, um, they didn't get the best outcome. Now, with the former group, it still mattered that you focused on what mattered. So I certainly had accounts that were worried more about pixel perfection, for lack of a better word, and then had uh, and 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 yet were you know hollowed out on core inventory sizes and and products. Um, whereas the folks who were a little less pixel perfect, but more focused on making sure they had the products that people wanted and the sizes they wanted, uh, that we were promoting them effectively, that we were merchandising effectively. Those are the guys that really you know delivered the outsized results. Uh, so anyway, something I've certainly learned from and tried to continue in my own career. I have a fun GSI story uh, to share. So I get this call one day from Rob, and he's like, hey, I've got this uh, great idea. We're having this, uh, uh, I don't know what you guys call it, like a summit, a customer council meeting, and there'll be like 500 people there. And we really want someone to come, and I just start been blogging a bit and, and be an industry expert and kind of like react to things that happen on the stage. I was like, okay, we'll do that. So we go over there, and uh, we're, where are we? Probably King of Prussia. Yeah, or, uh, Bay, or Atlantic so, City. So people would be on the stage, and we do things, and then my myself and my colleague would be there and we were mic'd up and we would just start chatting. It was, <laughs> it was the weird, biggest epic fail ever because we would just start talking or stand up and people would be like, what the heck is going? There's like no setup at all. We're just like randomly, we were like the grumpy old men on the Muppets kind of a setup. It was very, very strange. And, but it was, it was interesting and a good story. It's uh, probably the, the invite on that It's one, probably but. actually, we're kind of replicating that now, right? Live live podcasting yeah. from the shop.org uh, expo hall. There are people walking by and getting to hear our Bon Mo's and Pearls of Wisdom are probably similarly. And, you know, we all qualify as grumpy old men at this point. So yes. I think it's yeah. good. Yeah. It's good. My so, takeaway from that, though, is that Rob is really responsible for your storied career as a thought leader and subject matter expert. I, I kind of counted that one as more of a bump in the road. But we'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't get invited back the next year. Let's just say that. <laughs> cool. And then so you're at GSI and then you left the industry kind of for a little bit there. Uh, well, sort of. So sort of. Um, yeah. uh, I, I did take a... Uh, uh, I g- did go into travel, um, so I was the CMO of a company called Smart Destinations, which uh, does um, you know I won't I won't belabor it, but does uh, attraction passes, and people can figure out what that is uh, uh, on their own time. But uh, you know it was interesting; it was definitely a travel company. So we sold to people who were coming to say visit New York City and, and wanted to see the sites or visit Boston or LA or whatever. But it, but it was a product, and so uh, it was an it was an interesting because I think the travel guys are often trying to learn from retail and the retail guys are often trying to learn from travel. Um, and uh, this was actually a, a company that was very um, uh, amalgamation of both. So I was able to use what I'd learned in retail uh, there, um, but also picked up some very interesting insights. You know, the travel guys are fantastic at things like CRM. Um, they have an, a number of other skills, I think, that... Uh, Distribution. You know, they can they can <laughs> well, put their travel stuff on 8,000 different sites. You don't right. even really know who you're buying from or where, where the, you're going. That's right. And they're very... Uh, they don't get hung up on that. Uh, 
And um, yeah, so so uh, you know, it was a good uh, learning experience. I'd never been a CMO before. I'd never had to deal with things like pricing. That was never part of my purview. So uh, uh, got to sort of stretch and uh, do uh, do things I wouldn't have otherwise gotten to do. Um, so did that for a couple of years, and then a company called uh, Intent Media. Uh, it was a big data decisioning firm. Um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, I was at a conference, and uh, uh, one of the founders came up to me, and we started chatting, and. I, you know, just uh, they were doing amazing, or still are uh, doing amazing things with data and using data to understand. Hey, what's the best thing I should put in front of a particular visitor? Um, both speak, so it's relevant for them, but also for the monetization opportunity. Um, and so that really exposed me to a whole other world of the uh, the ad tech community. Which, funny, given the, you know what we do and 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 how much retail sort of leans in that community, and yet it's off to one side, right? So if you look around the shop floor there, uh, shop.org uh, expo floor, increasingly some of those companies are showing up here, but they spend most of their time at their own shows talking to themselves uh, a lot, um, and and they're fascinating. Um, but it's a world I think that probably retail needs to do a better job reaching out to and pulling in and, and leveraging. Yeah, their big show is called Ad Tech, isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so did that for about three years. And then, uh, serendipitously, uh, I was, you know, I was commuting down to New York from Boston where my family, uh, was and is. And, uh, a recruiter called me up and said, I've got a really interesting opportunity for you. And, uh, it was Talbot's. And, uh, I was sort of, uh, getting itchy to get back to retail. Uh, there were some things I missed from, uh, earlier in my career that, you know, when I was more in startup environments and very flat organizations, even though those are, you know, uh, there's a lot of goodness to that. Um, I think knowing how to navigate an organization, um, is something I enjoy and, and something I actually like to do is maybe weird as that sounds. And, uh, so, um, you know, when I got to know the leadership team at Talbot's, I was just incredibly impressed. Um, really, I, you know, a lot of people say this, but, but I really mean it. Like some of the greatest customers on the planet. And then, um, again, a lot of companies pay lip service to being customer centric. Um, the Talbot's associates are so all about the Talbot's customer. Um, and so there's this loyalty back and forth that, uh, I really haven't seen anywhere else. And so, uh, it's just been a great experience for me the past three years to be part of that and be part of that team. And, uh, uh, I learned a ton and, um, you know, just every day, you know, it's trite to say, but I'm, I've never gotten up and been like, oh, geez, I got to go to work. Uh, and I can't think of a time where I haven't at least had a few of those days. And I still get up every day and I'm still super excited to, uh, to go into Talbot's. It's just a phenomenal place to work. Well, and you've been there two weeks. No, just kidding. Yeah. No, it's been three years. Three <laughs> years. Okay. So, you know, and as you can tell from uh, the, you know, I didn't give all the years, but, you know, I'm, I'm like a lot of people in our space. I think, um, we all have a degree of uh, career ADD, right? So you see a lot of people who move every two, three, four years kind of thing. And I'm, I've certainly been one of those folks. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm nowhere. I, I don't feel like I'm reaching my boredom line at Talbot's or, um, you know, again, it's just it's a place I'm still incredibly enthusiastic about. So you just disappointed a ton of recruiters out there. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, so. Um, so tell us a, uh, just a high overview of Talbot's. If someone's listening, um, uh, most of our female listeners probably know about it, but uh, I know I know about it because I get drug in there by my wife. But is it a multi-brand retailer, or do you guys nope. sell mostly your own stuff? Uh, we, um, we so we sell our own. So we have, you know a couple a couple instances where we don't, but we sell our, our own products. So we're vertically integrated okay. specialty retailer. Um, we are owned by a private equity firm, okay. um, but but we're not part of a collection of brands other than sharing ownership with some other brands, if that makes sense. Yeah, and what's the store footprint look like? Um, so we're in about 500 locations across the U.S. Uh, we have both full-line retail as well as outlet stores. Um, we, we're a cataloger uh, and then obviously a, a, a website and a mobile experience as well. Very cool. 
And Rob, I imagine that your experience, your previous experience as a vendor, uh, do you think that's made you uh, a as a retailer, better at, at selecting and managing vendors and getting them the best out of them? You know, it's, it's a great question. And, and I think one of the things that I remember, yes, well done. One of the things I remember uh, from being a vendor that was the worst, right, is the the person who wanted to be nice to me. And what I mean by that is they weren't necessarily ready to buy. They, they didn't have it. They weren't planning on doing it. But it was like, you know, hey, Scott, that was great. Glad. Thanks for coming to meeting me. You know, let's do this again. Let's have another meeting. And so you're sitting there managing your sales pipeline and you're constantly putting, you know, this company down your pipeline, down your pipeline, but it never goes anywhere. And the person thinks they're being nice to you, but they're, they're actually chewing up time, resource, uh, et cetera. Uh, and so uh, I think I'm, I may not always feel this way to the people who are trying to sell into me when I kind of ignore them. Um, but it actually is in their best interest, and I'm not being facetious about that. A, a firm um, no is far preferred to a, a prolonged maybe. Yeah, You're exactly. Like the Simon Cowell of vendor management. But right? the but the flip side of it too is, I think a lot of folks in my roles feel that a good part of their job is to just meet constantly be meeting with vendors, right? Um, I sort of take a view that what you want to do is first figure out, well, what is it you want to do? What is your objective? What is the problem you're trying to solve, et cetera? Then back into the means and say, what's the best way to do it? And it may not always be it's a vendor, but if it is, then go through a selection process. I think the problem, if you're just constantly meeting with vendors, any vendor with a decent sales person should be able to get you super excited about their product and create desire. And, and you, oh, we got to get that. We got to get that live. We got to roll that out. Um, and I think that probably leads to a lot of, um, um, distraction, uh, by the retailer in terms of maybe not focusing on the things that are most important to their end consumers. Um, so that's, I guess, and that's the answer I give to your question. It's sort of on, on two sides. So you're, you're saying you, you like to identify the need before you go looking for a solution. And it's crazy. And I know it's, it's, it's totally self-evident, but, I, but I do think, and, and I'll see it in myself, right? If I go and talk to some of these guys on the expo floor, I'm going to get excited about what they're doing. Right. And I may start to think, wow, I should probably have these guys in and get my team all torqued up. And, so, and next thing you know, we're sort of trying to figure out how to roll out that solution as opposed to trying to figure out how to best solve for a particular opportunity or problem so it's, i'm pretty sure qvc and hsn are really grateful that not all consumers feel the same way you do <laughs> yeah and, and look i mean i think i think it, it creating desire obviously is a huge part of, of b2c and, and of course it's part of b2b too but you're playing with someone else's money in a sense um so it's one thing if i choose to spend my own disposable income on things it's another thing if you're spending your shareholders and, and i do think it is bad for customers right and you do get a lot of if we just think about websites a lot of overbuilt sites that just feel like, oh, they had some white space and they plugged feature X in there or plugged feature Y in there. And then there's this desire to make it work. Well, they told me I was going to get a 5% lift. I got to get a 5% lift. Um, so I'm going to kind of stuff it down the consumer's throat, whether they want it or not. Um, anyway, and don't get me wrong. There are, we have vendor relationships, uh, all throughout my career. Uh, Channel Advisor has been a great partner pretty much everywhere I've worked. Um, and, uh, you know, that that do move the ball forward and so i'm not i'm not i'm not and nothing i'm saying is meant to be anti-vendor it's more just being smart uh about when and where you go after them and that is ultimately probably best for the vendors as well because not only does it head off wasted sales cycles but frankly it probably also heads off disappointed clients um which is destructive to you know vendor um 
success as well as to the retailer. So anyway, Absolutely. probably a longer answer than you were expecting, but no, it's perfect. Uh, I do want to change topics though. When Scott introduced you, uh, one of the things he mentioned was that you, uh, head the digital council at shop.org. So can you tell us a little bit about what the digital council is? Yeah. So, um, Shop to, uh, so NRF has a number of councils. They have a CMO council, a loss prevention council, uh, a CIO council. And, um, you know, when shop.org became part of the NRF family, um, there was the shop that there is still the shop.org board, uh, which, which predates that, um, uh, acquisition and is still a vital part of, uh, of the shop.org, uh, uh, family. I'm sitting with, uh, fellow board members, uh, uh, right here. But, um, there was a, Scott's actually been, he's now emer- emeritus. Yes. Um, uh, there is a, um, uh, there was a recognition that, hey, there, there's, there's a way to broaden the tent a bit, uh, create more spaces for, uh, dialogue, uh, between retailers and associate members. And, uh, so the council's really a, a way to do that and get more, uh, folks able to engage both for the networking, which I think is probably one of the biggest value, but also it's just a great place to, uh, you know, discuss, frankly, the kind of things you guys bring up, uh, on the Jason and Scott show. You know, what does Amazon mean? What about mobile? Where's personalization headed? Uh, are chatbots, you know, r- ready for prime time now or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So. Cool. You uh, you brought up the A A word, so I'll, I'll jump right into that. Uh, so through the arc of your career in like the last fifteen years, you've seen Amazon really kind of rise. And uh, a good example is one of those forty two businesses I imagine you ran was Sports Authority, and we've seen that whole industry just get demolished here lately. Um, what do you think about Amazon? And and you know, are they an unstoppable kind of freight train? And should people uh, inevitably partner with them or are they just kind of the ultimate foe and you have to just continue to, to fight them. Uh, I'll also point out a lot of the companies kind of like yours that are these kind of vertically integrated companies are, you know, starting to say like the gap came out recently. And then I think was it lands in, uh, have both kind of capitulated and said, we're going to sell our brand on Amazon. So it's kind of an interesting thing to think yeah. through at a, if, you know, I don't want to know anything about Talibits, but just kind of like for those brands out there, how should they think about it? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, that's obviously, uh, uh, an, it depends kind of answer um you know it, it's funny because amazon has sort of been part of that, that career arc i described um i can remember again going on yahoo google didn't exist believe it or not yahoo didn't even have a search engine you navigated and i can remember alta vista for the win you're right um hey i want to uh i want to buy a book online and I, I can remember having a mental block. What's the name of that online bookstore that doesn't have a name that has anything to do with books? So I would navigate, you know, retail, uh, books, and then Amazon would be near the top. To, so that was sort of, you know, back in the world says. I then actually, when I was in business school, uh, I hosted Jeff uh, Bezos to come visit. Uh, and he spoke. And he actually, uh, Leonard Reggio spoke on like a Tuesday about Barnes & Noble. And then Bezos was the next day talking about Amazon. So that was one of the, that was certainly an interesting, uh, interaction. Um, and then when I was at GSI, we sold through Amazon. So we sold through a number of sites. Uh, we sold through Toys R Us. We sold through Kmart. We sold through QVC, et cetera. But we also sold through Amazon. And what we saw then was the genesis. And I know you like to knock this sort of quote unquote myth down, but I'll tell you, we saw over and over again when uh, a product would start to get traction it would then stop getting traction because Amazon would then bring it in house and one P it. And this was very early days. I don't even think it was called a marketplace at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our merchants were like, all we're doing is training Amazon in the sporting goods business. Right. So I think, um, I think that fear should probably still exist for retailers, although it, the, the ship may have sailed. They may, they don't, they probably don't need to be trained in anything anymore. And they're so big and have so much power. 
you know, my own view on Amazon, and you guys always like to say, oh, Jeff Bezos is listening. I think one of the best things that not only for the retail industry, but actually for Amazon would be to get out of the 1P business. If you think about all, you mentioned Land's End and, and Gap, um, and, and they combined that announcement that they're going to sell on Amazon with a, boy, we had a really bad quarter. So um, as you said, they capitulated. Um, if you actually look at things like Amazon Fashion, it's it's really more striking at the number of brands who aren't there versus the number of brands who are. Um, and, I, and I'm not, you know, they've, they're selling, they're going after it, et cetera. But I think the fastest way for them to just sort of get everybody on Amazon, the way, frankly, Google has got everybody on Google, is to stop being a, 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 a competition. And if you look at where they make their money, where do they make their money? I, I know they're starting now to make money on the 1P business, but it's the marketplace. You guys talked about this in your deep dive, right? The margins are in the marketplace. The margins are in AWS. The margins are in a fulfillment by Amazon, et cetera. And uh, they, if they double down on that, I think, A, there'd be an explosion of actually the retailer selling on their site. Um, and uh, they they would probably have be a much more profitable business. Now, you know, they probably won't do that for any number of reasons, but that would certainly unlock the uh, the door for a lot of retailers to come on board and start selling with them. I think there'd be an argument that you need 1P to start that flywheel, but that at some point you, the, the wheel gets enough momentum and you achieve critical mass, you, you could potentially turn that piece off and not miss a beat. And as a, 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 you know, we joke about it, but I am a loyal listener of your podcast. Uh, I mean, the stats that Scott shares week after week about the growth of the third party selling and how much of the assortment that is. And yes, you know, your, your point uh, that you made recently about, hey, they really want to be in one piece. So they know that they have those key products in. Yep. But if you were to have a Best Buy uh, in there and comfortable, uh, um, you know, and all the other folks in, in consumer electronics, for example, they would cover it. Right. And, and similarly in other um, places. And, and I do think they could they could provide a tremendous value to a lot of retailers who, frank, you know, you look at fulfillment by Amazon. Um, you know, what's the percent now? 20 minutes from uh, home sick? 44%. 44%, right? That's an unlock, obviously, for a lot of smaller retailers. But you think of the power that could bring to, to much larger retailers as well. But they're nervous, right? It's doing a deal with the devil in some people's eyes. And in other cases, eyes, it just, just feels uh, too scary to contemplate. So, um, I, I think there's an unlock there. But, you know, obviously, Amazon's going to make their own business decisions, uh, um, yeah, I don't know if they'd ever cross that. It's an interesting thought experiment. I just don't know if um, retail is so deep in their blood if they would ever be able to get rid of that. We'll see. You never, yeah, never, never say never. Never know. I never thought never PayPal and eBay would split up. Boom, and here we are. Yeah. There's two separate booths over there right That's now. That's right. We can see them <laughs> from where we are. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if I uh, totally answered your Amazon question, but maybe at least gave you something different from the 15 other people you've asked it. That's interesting. Absolutely. Uh, I want to change topics to one of my favorite topics, Omnichannel. I know you had a lot of brick-and-mortar clients uh, in your GSI portfolio, but in that era, almost everyone was thinking about those as pretty separate businesses, That's is right. my perception. And the mere fact that they would outsource that business to you sort of indicated that. Uh, obviously, Talbots is a brand that I imagine the majority of your clients' uh, customers first came to uh, through brick-and-mortar stores. Um, and so how are you guys thinking about Omnichannel, and where, where do you think you are on the, the spectrum of evolution? So our, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, euphemism or, you hear often is... maybe even just the in, the, your industry in general. Well, yeah, you, you've heard the expression, the closely held, and that's very much Talbot. So so rather than talk specifically about Talbot, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of pull it up a level. Um, 
I think um, my view on omnichannel is uh, uh, that the and th- this, by the way, wasn't a view that was formed at GSI, and I've, I've believed it ever since. Um, that the technology pieces of it are are the math, um, right? You can just they make them work. Um, the hard part uh, and the art is the store associate in particular. And so if you look at the people who I sort of see doing omnichannel well, um, uh, they're the ones where the, they're, the store associate doesn't have incentives causing her to, um, you know, want to reject or push back on omnichannel. Um, uh, where the omnichannel solution has been rolled out in such a way that it doesn't interfere with her workflow. Um, that it augments and supports what she's trying to do in terms of serving customers. Um, and that there's a real sense of customer value because I think most associates, they want customers to be, uh, you know, uh, get, having a valuable experience and they're painfully aware because they're the ones that get yelled at, uh, when it doesn't happen. And I don't know about you guys, but, but you, you know, you like to try things out, right? How many times have you read about some retailer rolling out some omnichannel, uh, capability or back in the day, a multi-channel capability? And you're like, I'm going to go try that. And you go in and you end up having to explain to the associate, here's how it works, this yeah. is what you need to do, et cetera. Yeah. And, and you guys are capable of doing that. Now think of all the other people that come in are just like, I was told that if I did this, I would get that, and why am I not getting it? Um, and so I think, uh, I think for a lot of retailers, they'll roll out the technology and sort of uh, declare victory, um, and yet they didn't do the pre-work and the post-work to make sure their associates are, are engaged. And, and again, we saw that at GSI because we were trying to do multi-channel, even though it was separate. Um, you know, that, that was a big part of, uh, of where we saw, you know, the business going. At GSI, you guys acquired that, uh, I can't remember the name of the company, but it, it actually did a ship from store kind of capability, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and a lot of that was sort of as I was uh, rolling out and, and leaving, but yep. uh, there, was a, there was a big push on that because they, they saw how important that is. And, you know, um, yeah, obviously ship from store now is almost uh, uh, table stakes to, to running a, a, a successful retail operation, I think. Yeah, so so you've uh, been here at the show for three days. You've uh, led the digital council meeting. What are how would you kind of characterize what's kind of the buzz at the show or in the industry? What what are people talking about? What are they worried about? What are they excited about? Yeah, so so uh, well, I'll share um, kind of the, the the things you'd expect, and then uh, I kind of have a sidebar. Um, you know, mobile obviously continues to be front and center. I, I think. Um, you know, we, we talked uh, on Monday in the Digital Council how, you know, mobile was always going to be tomorrow's technology and tomorrow never came. And now all of a sudden it's yesterday and like everyone's like, oh, oh my gosh, like, you know, I'm behind. I'm trying to catch up. And yet I think uh, retail is still, as often happens with new technology, doesn't quite know where to go um, and uh, is just trying to do what they did with the old metaphor in the new metaphor. So same thing happened when, when uh, the Internet first came around. What do we try to do? We tried to make it look like print and television. Mobile comes along. Well, let's make it look like just a smaller version of the internet. Um, anyway, so uh, obviously a lot of good and healthy focus uh, on uh, on that. Um, uh, Omnichannel, of course, is uh, you know uh, front and center for for most retailers and Amazon too. Something you guys talk a lot about on, and I think people are very interested in it. Even if there isn't necessarily a session, it's kind of what people are talking to each other about. You know, whether it's the question you ask me, hey, should we sell or not, or what do we do? Like, oh my gosh, how do we compete, et cetera? Now, the sidebar for me that's kind of been interesting and something I've been kind of gratified by is um, 
uh, I've seen, uh, you know, data has always been a big part of what's uh, increasingly powering sort of the vendor community here and, and mm-hmm. uh, allowing them to do more and more and uh, generate more and more value. Um, what's been really something I've seen that's kind of a shift is they're no longer just trying to tell me, and it's a great way to give coupons to your customers, right? So, um, which, you know, we have plenty of ways of doing that, right? I, I, you know, email actually works just fine. Um, so what I've been sort of gratified to see is that a lot of these vendors are now saying, hey, I'm using this data to do things your customers are really going to value besides couponing, whether it's outfitting, which has sort of been a holy grail in the apparel space that uh, folks haven't really ever got to, uh, or, um, hey, can we create a cross-retailer global order history that then that can be used for all sorts of things? And, and the list goes on, but that, I think, has been showing a real uh, maturity and a recognition that there there is more to retail than giving away uh, promotions. One thing I've noticed is uh, there seems to be a lot of vendors here that are really kind of, they're taking, you know, last year was a lot around big data and that kind of thing. This year, it's artificial intelligence and machine learning. I haven't been able to vet any of that, but it's definitely this trend that kind of popped up this year that seems to be hitting retail very, very hard. Um, I can't really sort through fact and fiction. Curious if you guys have any thoughts on that. Jason, I'll let you go first. Yeah, I mean, I think... It is a really important part of the ecosystem. A lot of the vendors that are talking about it here are, are still offering point solutions. That's sort of a, a standalone silo, and, I, and ironically, like that's exactly not the way to do this, right? Like this, this is one of those areas where you know I almost feel like retailers should be instead of trying to buy a a product, um, they they should be buying some services to to organically build the the in-house competencies around um, cognitive computing for big data. It's more of a cloud approach where the retailer can pull down what they want to need and, and infuse across yep. the thing versus there's, these points. Exactly. Okay. And there's certainly tools that you're going to want to use to help facilitate that. But like it just buying a turnkey solution doesn't seem like the, the approach that's likely to stick within an organization. And that, and that makes a lot of sense to me too, because I think um, if you just think about the scarcity of, of the talent in this space, The idea that, um, you know, any retailer below massive, massive scale would be able to get that talent and, and, and keep it, um, seems problematic to me. Um, the other thing that I like to say, and this was true with, if, if big data is now so last year, uh, I think it, it still applies, um, is that I think for a lot of retailers, they have a lot of value and, uh, work that can be done around small data and just, uh, doing a better job with, the data they have where this single signal to noise ratio is really high. And so, and, and you think about how many retailers uh, leave money on the table, just not doing the basics. And actually, I don't know if you guys listened in, there was a panel this morning with Facebook, Google, and Pinterest talking about the future of the internet. And uh, that was the, the collective advice of, of the wisdom of that crowd, which is, hey, retailers don't leap all the way to what's new and what's hot right this minute before you've actually got the stuff that is now uh, proven to work. Fundamentals. Uh, is, yeah, get the fundamentals right. And I think yeah. that's uh, that's just good advice kind of across the board. Yeah. Um, well, in wrapping up, one of the things that I'm always interested in is, are, are there any new technologies out there that you're excited about um, in terms of the next couple of years? What yeah. should we be investing in? You well, were, your early days in this first-person thing, are you excited about virtual reality? Or? Uh, you guys actually have to say, I listened to that podcast, The Deep Dive, 
and I was going in very skeptical. I'm still a little skeptical, but I'm less skeptical than I was. And the and the the near uh, death Pokemon incident that occurred yesterday is sort of you know anyway I won't go into that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, very powerful moment for me. You know the thing that I'm excited about it's it's going to sound kind of weird, but um, uh, so chip and pin right is, is sort of required. It's being rolled out. We've all experienced that sort of uh, you put the card in and you wait and you wait and you wait and then all of a sudden the machine is incredibly mad at you that you haven't taken you know take it out right now and you get sort of the submarine dive sound uh, you know you know and uh, but what that's done is taken away the advantage of the simple swipe. So the swipe was so easy right done. Um, why would I do mobile payments in store? Well, guess what? The swipe is gone. It's not so easy anymore. And so the time advantage that the swipe had uh, over mobile payments is gone. And I think what that's going to do over time is people are going to start to use their phones increasingly to mobile pay- payments beyond Starbucks. And uh, that's then going to lock all the other things that can be linked to payments. You know, as you kind of pull that thread back, you're going to have loyalty, obviously. You're going to have order history. Um, and uh, you'll increasingly start to get things that are potentially um, uh cross retailer um in the apparel space for example uh i may not have a pair of pants from you know company x but i want something to go with it i'll now potentially have a medium to help me either interact with an associate or otherwise get that recommendation even though i'm now in retailer y the list goes on i think i think that's going to be that may happen very very quickly and you combine that with some of the the uh, astonishingly fast uh, movement we've seen in terms of the overhauling of POS systems and changing them from big iron to now being software solutions and how those things start to communicate. So the mobile device I, the consumer, bring into a store with the point-of-sale system that's now a flexible, uh, reactive, software-based environment. Um, I think there are going to be a lot of I- interactions between, uh, obviously, human beings but with technology-assisted uh, that also are going to be pretty interesting down the road. I, I totally agree. I, I feel like those digital wallets have the potential to, to eliminate a ton of friction. And I think many people are going to be surprised how much additional commerce that unlocks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Rob, it has happened again. We have used up all our allotted time, uh, but we are really grateful for you taking some time out uh, from the show to give us your insights. Thanks, Rob. We really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, while you're here at the summit, we'll see you at the next one. Uh, you'll probably be at the big show, so I'm sure we'll see you there. Absolutely. Um, and as a ri- reminder to our live audience, next up, we have Nicholas Franchette and Maz Sharafi from Facebook. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.